Pew Research has indicated that women now make up a bare majority of the college-educated labor force in the United States. In universities across the country, women now make up higher rates of university attendance compared to men. At the same time, the world has at large seen rising rates of gender-based violence since COVID-19. There are individuals who argue now that there are unfair advantages that discriminate against men, and a counteracting force that has argued that women's empowerment has not yet been achieved and has even slowed. It seems that the markings of a gender conflict are occurring across many societies, from South Korea to Afghanistan in the 21st century. How did we get here? Where do we go from here? Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bizarre Banter. It's your host, Iman. And Ala. And today we're joined by a very lovely guest, Monit. Hello, everyone. Monit, if you want to share a little bit about um, your connection to Bazaar Banter and why we're having you on the episode today. Yes, uh, I became acquainted with Iman in high school. Um, I have a great passion for current events, especially in political science, focusing in international development. Ethnically, I'm Indian American, and I hope to provide a more holistic mosaic in our discussion of South Asian cultural trends and gender empowerment. Um, and I'm happy to be here. So thank you so much for having me, Iman and Allah. Thank you thank for you coming. For it was about time to have our first guest and to bring a male perspective to this very feminine, <laughs> feminine podcast. podcast. You know, we told you, you know, we talk about women's issues all the time, but today we're trying to talk about all issues regarding gender. So that takes me right into a little disclaimer. Uh, as we've said, today's topic is surrounded surrounding gender and all forms of gender, but we will be mainly talking about, you know, masculinity versus femininity, and we can't do that without addressing that all of those are very much social constructs, and the dual gender we'll be talking about today isn't necessarily our beliefs. You know, there are many layers and gender is a multifaceted topic. So we can't go on without addressing that gender doesn't just come in two shades. It's a spectrum and, you know, many people don't even necessarily associate with gender. So just wanted to put that out there before we get into everything else. Yeah, and I think each of us uh, wanna start by talking a little bit about how we ourselves view gender. Um, for me, in terms of how genders played a role in my life, I think a big thing is I've felt very disconnected from a lot of my male peers because there's this um, lack of conversation and a thing that I really want to bridge a gap between, which is opening a conversation between myself and my male peers. And a big reason why I wanted Monet on this podcast today is because um, he's kind of given me this new perspective of like a male perspective. And he's one of the only people, only I feel like male figures in my life that I've had the opportunity to have so many of these beautiful conversations with about um, the future and all of the things that we hope to see in our society. So, yeah. So moving forward, my views with gender today, um, I grew up obviously, as I've said a lot in Iran, which will also get into the cultural aspects of gender, but growing up, I necessarily didn't feel super interested in the stereotypical um, female or girly <laughs> things go growing up. And 
it never was an issue with me. I don't think anyone in my family also made it an issue, um, which I was very glad about. I think it was very normalized, you know, also having a younger brother, if I was interested in like Spider-Man or cars, those were very accepted. So growing up, I never viewed myself as a very feminine or a very masculine figure. I just kind of like what I like and I roll with it without having to define every action I do. And I do think it does give me a lot of peace not having to define everything and box everything. So I do think my identity is she, her, hers, and I do love the feminine energy I give off, but it's kind of a mesh with me. So yeah, what about you, Monet? Yeah, so, you know, when it comes to discussions on gender, I have always, you know, since I was a kid, um, had an understanding of the gender roles that uh, were a part of either American society, Indian society, global society, you know, and, uh, you know, not to touch on the construct of gender itself, but I, I do believe personally that society has become a very painful process of nearly two to 3,000 years of precedent in regards to having these conversations and restructuring how we see traditional gender roles. Um, I do believe that this process will inevitably lead to conflict, but that this is something that's necessary in terms of improving society. Um, if we look at, you know, modern relations between genders today, neither gender occupies a space in history that is exactly like our forefathers. But that doesn't mean that conversations like this are not worth having. Thank you for that. Yeah, I do agree that takes us into a good topic of the dual genders and the conflict between them. Yeah, so we wanted to kind of start off by talking about um, in modern America, why different genders aren't necessarily getting along. And it kind of connects to what I was talking about earlier with feeling disconnected from a lot of my male peers, which is there's this lack of a channel of communication between the sexes. And because of this, there's a lot of room for stereotypes to sort of permeate. Um, and we kind of wanted to go into some of these stereotypes, both from a women, from a female perspective and a male perspective. Um, Ala, do you want to start off with some of the female stereotypes? Yeah. I mean, obviously, like we said, these are stereotypes, so it's not really news to anybody. But with female slash women stereotypes, um, for generations now women have been viewed as very emotional entities and beings and we I mean in that way we've also been it's been socially accepted to share our feelings or our thoughts or our perspectives um, which necessarily isn't true of our male counterparts and with women as well um, there's a lot you know with both genders there's a lot of pressures but in different systems right and one of the pressures with women is that we, even though we are emotional entities, we don't necessarily feel as though we have space to express ourselves outside of our network. And we've been taught to hide parts of ourself. Um, and a big part of that has been suppressing feelings of anger or negative feelings that necessarily don't, aren't viewed so much as feminine or aren't normalized. Well, male anger is way more normalized than women. Yeah. And something I wanted to touch on was some of this like 
am highly emotional, like females are so emotional, kind of comes from us being put in this traditional role of being nurturers. Mm -hmm. um, but the second that we're, it's not a nurturing emotion or it's not something that makes the other person feel good, it's like us expressing healthy anger, it's sort of put in this other box of like, oh, she's like a feminist, like she's she's so mad all the time, like, you know, and it's just this dichotomy of how we're expected to behave a certain way. Yeah. Um, another thing we wanted to touch on also is the pressure of women kind of having a biological clock. Yes, there is like a scientific notion to that. But also, in society, we do push women to get married fast, have children, all these things when necessarily you don't have those set expectations of men. Um, and as women also in our generation and growing up and being in our early 20s, there's a sense of feeling like we're failing if we aren't securing a husband right now, aren't on the prospect of having children and whatever that is. And I do think we are destigmatizing a lot of this and learning that, you know, with women in the workforce, you know, a lot of people don't strive to have children or a traditional household. But there are still those views that certain things should be done by certain ages. Or it's objectively hard for women to balance having kids and having a career and, you know, being in a relationship and having all those factors together. Yeah, I love that. I love the way you voice that. Yeah, another stereotype we wanted to bring up was sort of how females feel as though they have to take responsibility for things that aren't necessarily their fault. And it's sort of becomes like this natural instinct to us, I think, um, to be blamed in different situations, even when maybe there are like external factors or other people that should be held responsible. Yeah. And obviously, with all these topics, we could go into hours and hours of discussion, but we're, we are trying to just keep it concise and touch on as much as we can. And with my <laughs> medical background and my bio background, I didn't want to not include this in this discussion of gender and medicine. Um, with medicine for so long, there were underrepresented research when it came to women and that led to a lot of misdiagnoses and even to this day a lot of unknowns when it comes to medical issues surrounding women and you know that's due to decades and decades of misogyny and sexism where men were the focus of medicine and men were the um, patients that were more studied um, and because of that yes it leads to limited research when it comes to women's issues for example um, heart disease is known to be a very male disease, but, you know, with women, heart disease is shown very differently than it could in men. So a lot of times, um, even if, for example, a woman's having a heart attack, it's not as easily diagnosed as a man. And that's, I mean, it just shows that there has been limited research throughout medicine. And efforts are trying to correct these disparities, and there is a lot that's being changed. But I do believe that in our society, we do need to put an emphasis on medicine, um, ensuring that research in future applies to all genders, regardless of genders. So I just wanted to put that in there. I know maybe wasn't correlating to anything, but we can move on to maybe some male stereotypes. Yes, you know, um, men 
have to be, I think this is the classic case, especially in modern Western society where uh, men are seen as the more logical sex. And the counteraction of that is that men can't show emotion or mm -hmm. lack emotion. Um, there is a pressure among men to be composed, to, you know, uh, not appear vulnerable or weak when expressing their emotions. And I think that it's summed up by the infamous adage, you know, men don't cry, boys mm -hmm. don't cry, you know? And I think growing up um, still, boys are often still taught. I know I certainly was taught to, you know, not show my emotions because it's unbecoming of me as a man. Um, there is a pressure significantly on men to be caretakers. Um, a lot too more in societies throughout the global South. Um, I know, you know, personally, especially among South Asian societies, Iman, you can talk about in Pakistani households um, that men definitely do have, you know, or have to sort of rise to the occasion in to be a provider. A breadwinner. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's where, um, I, that's what I've seen in my family, especially. And even in like, you know, my uncles, my dad, just this, this go, go, go mentality, this drive to be a provider and almost like they were put in that position as well. Right. And how our societies expected them to step up in that way. Yeah. And so I, I generally do believe that, especially in the modern era, this is a great segue to, you know, what we now call and what, you know, this cultural construct is being described as, as male rage, mm -hmm. male rage, especially of young men, um, whether it's anger over what they perceive as, you know, injustices when it comes to the feminist movement, um, the rise of the incel movement or, you know, all around radicalization. A lot of men, I definitely think, um, do face either, you know, uh, heavy, you know, uh, heavy emotional problems that they don't have an outlet of achieving or, or dealing with, you know, they suffer uh, silently, you know, in terms of mental health. Um, mm -hmm. They are expected to be breadwinners or things of that nature, but they may at times feel that their status as breadwinners is being um, trampled upon or being changed or, you know, uh, whether it's losing your job or, you know, not being able to find successful work, you're seeing men disconnect from society. Um, and then while this is common, uh, we certainly see this trend, uh, especially among hikikomori in Japan or the radicalization of young men in the Sahel. Uh, there are, I think today, valid points for men and in, in modern day developed Western society you know, whether it's, as I've mentioned before, mental health, high rates of suicide, unequal treatment in courts and custody. I think personally, and what I want to have the conversation with you guys about Iman and Allah is that it can be possible for us to tackle these issues simultaneously. Yeah. We can focus and have a conversation about dealing with women's issues and dealing with men's issues and really come together and create a really inclusive environment where both of us can uh, show that it doesn't have to be a back and forth. Yeah. I had a question actually when you were talking. Do you think that a lot of the rage comes from kind of feeling as though you have this immense amount of pressure on you to be this very stereotypical successful man in that regards and then kind of feeling like it's too much almost to burden like as if this this stereotype is like 
not justified anymore in our generation. Definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, I, and I think well, uh, on a personal level, while I may never have ever been able to experience, you know, I, I have not experienced male rage in the traditional sense that, you know, that we are talking about. I, I do know, you know, as a child in an immigrant household, the pressure and the drive to succeed. It's mm -hmm. something that I've had many of my peers also deal with. It's something that I'm sure you guys have talked about before. Um, and I think if we extrapolate that into an entire gender, and we talk on the fact that men, you know, are expected to still be breadwinners in a society um, that may or, you know, may not, may be changing in ways that they can't really uh, understand, or um, it, it may be hard to understand. That can cause a lot of resentment, and that combined with pressure is a really volatile situation. It makes a lot of sense. I wanted to mention something because I think you said something really beautiful, which was the two things can exist simultaneously. Like men and women can understand one another's issues and struggles simultaneously. And I think a huge part of society today right now is there's a lot of anger um, from like years past, like mm -hmm. at the other. And I think a lot of men still think like, oh, their female counterparts or like other women see them or still expect them to be breadwinners or like in that sense. And I think there's maybe even a little bit of anger towards females because of that, that they've also been a part in like putting them in that place too. Because yes, there's like societal expectations, but I also think that there's pressure from other women too. And then on the other side of it is like how men, how women feel about men, which is anger towards them at their situation and their circumstances. And just bridging the gap between those two things and really having a conversation is gonna, I think, dilute mm -hmm. some of that anger. And I think diluting is like the beginning stage yeah to eventually and we'll definitely talk about like also our views of like how going forward things can change and i do think that's a big aspect of it so yeah yeah anything else about the stereotypes well i, I just want to you know mention one more point yeah you know uh uh what, and what, what we touch on uh iman you know and what you were talking about in terms of uh in terms of pressure and in terms of the other sexes you know the there being effectively a war on the sexes you know, when we look at societies like South Korea, where the political discourse now has been, um, you know, completely uh, politicized from one side to another, um, you know, where, you know, the, the incoming uh, head of government under Yoon, you've seen basically a very strong gender divide among feminists, radical feminists, mm -hmm. and the rise of men's rights activists and anti-feminists, you start to really have to break down, you know, what does it mean to be a feminist? You yeah. know, where exactly do we see each other? And I think that that is something that we will also be able to touch on later in the podcast. For sure. Big, heavy topics coming shortly. <laughs> I think that's a great segue to um, gender expectations in our cultural community, the South Asian community. Iman, you want to start us off? Yeah, I'm coming at this from a little bit of a female perspective. Um, and I think Monet's going to be talking a little bit more about that later. But 
from my point of view and from what I've seen, I think within the South Asian community, there's a lot of um, a difference in the way that male and female children are approached and pushed to pursue their dreams and careers and things of that sort. I mean, in Pakistani culture, especially, like, I still see so much of this, like, pushing, like, men to kind of pursue, like, their greatest potential. And I don't see that same push for women, and not just by parents, but like the community at large. And um, I think that's something that I really, really hope is going to change in the in the future. And another thing that I wanted to bring up was um, the concept of sharam or shame in Pakistani culture. And this is so at the core of like the toxic parts of our culture, because if there's, if you know anything about Pakistani culture, religion and culture have become so intertwined, but in a way that I think people throw cultural norms and like patriarchal like ideals into that into the same category as Islam which I don't think is necessarily true these are practices that have been you know solidified by men over generations um and so something I wanted to talk about with sharam is it's a very common phrase for um, you to say to a girl, like, don't you have any sharam? And it's very rarely used against a man in Pakistani culture. And it could be from anything from, you know, hiding their monthly periods to, you know, like not appearing like promiscuous to um, a man or, you know, in any way being like sexual beings. And that's just one aspect of it. Um, but it's, it's when it's in its extreme form, like sharam can be used with, for things like honor killings. Um, and it's it's ironic because honor killings are don't have a place in Islam. But honor killings are essentially um, the killing of um, females that are seen as bringing shame to their families. Um, it's not something that's only prevalent in Pakistan. Um, all around the world. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not tied to just South yeah. Asia no, Middle yeah. East. It's not tied but, to one religion. But particularly in Pakistan, it's a huge um, a huge deal and something that happens all the time. Even though honor killings are an extreme example, um, I kind of just wanted to touch on them because a lot of these inequalities that you see in um, South Asian society and Pakistani society in general are rooted in these generations and centuries of mistreatment of women and inequalities. Um, Allah, if you want to talk a little about, bit about gender in your culture now. Yeah, so I kind of feel like the outlier here. <laughs> I'm bringing a little bit of a Middle Eastern perspective, but also like an ancient Persian perspective, because with Iran, it's difficult because, you know, there's empires and empires worth of history there so there's so many topics i could bring about with generate uh with gender and iran and obviously there are a lot of gender issues 
currently happening in Iran as well, but I'm not going to get too much into that. But, and obviously, whatever research people want to do, go do it on your own. I'm not trying to be super, like, informative here. But with Iran, I always thought gender was pursued really interestingly because even though the media portrays Iran as this very misogynistic country, and yes, it is, but we can't also not acknowledge the fact that Iran has one of the highest rates of women in education and women are still very much encouraged to pursue higher education and even outnumber men in most universities across Iran. So women are very much in the workforce and in every career field. And I saw that a lot also growing up because my mom, my aunt, you know, my aunt is a doctor and she was a doctor in Iran. My mom was in computer science in Iran. So both very much in STEM fields as women and kind of changing um, the mindset of women in the workforce too. So growing up with that, I am very lucky to have had very strong female role models in that sense where I didn't really see the power dynamics differences that much, but um Yes, there are a lot of these stereotypical differences too across the nation because women don't necessarily hold a lot of leadership positions. But, you know, you can also say that in America where women are in a lot of work um, work fields and in a lot of universities, they do outnumber men in America as well. But why is it that women don't hold these leadership positions? And that's a whole other topic in and of itself. But one thing I did want to touch on was in ancient Persia, as opposed to now, women did have a lot of influence in leadership positions. They ruled a lot of the um, a lot of the positions in these empires and were promoted to be in leadership roles. And another part I also thought was super interesting with Iran and gender is that in historical views, um, when people were depicted in art throughout history, gender was shown as a fluid and androgynous form. And I always loved that little snippet aspect of my culture because even like a lot of the art I look into with Persian art, it you do see women that do look very masculine per se, whatever that is, but you know, body hair and the unibrows and you know, you can't really distinguish femininity and masculinity in that form. And growing up, I thought that was a very cool perspective. Um, Another thing I wanted to touch on was um, gender and growing up also having a brother having a younger brother i do think in a lot of persian households there is a difference where the boy and girl are treated differently growing up but i always loved the way that there wasn't much difference between us based on our gender and even to this day like some extended family will tell me like oh like when are you going to get a husband or are you dating someone or all these things, which is very outdated, you know, views. And still to this day happens a lot in Iran where women need to bear children or whatever the case. But my dad always pushed this idea of like, she doesn't need to marry anyone. Like let her be, let her do her own thing. Let's not push her into anything. If she wants to be a doctor, let her be a doctor, all these things. And I kind of cherish that perspective too. So even though there are a lot of different power dynamics and different gender roles in Iran, I do think 
there is also a lot of good as well. You can't necessarily generalize the whole Persian community to just one thing, in my opinion. And I think people, different experiences, different people, but I'm just kind of saying it from my perspective and my opinions that I've had. <laughs> so yeah, okay, Monet, your turn with culture and gender. How did you experience? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think I both relate and also contrast with both of your guys' perspectives. I think the the fact is that there are unique circumstances coming to this as the person uh, representing India um, or the person uh, or a person being of the Hindu faith on here. I do want to put in a caveat that the personal circumstances that I faced growing up are very much unique and would not describe the average Indian American, the average Indian or South Asian, or the average Hindu household. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, growing up in the United States, especially because I was born and raised here, you know, uh, in the context of being an Indian American, even in and having an Indian American household, I never really experienced those certain rigid gender-based roles that you guys had been discussing. I would say that we lived in a very egalitarian household. Both my parents worked, um, you know, in terms of housework, there was, I think, uh, you know, more or less an equitable division of the housework. Again, you know, maybe it was not um, completely divided equally, but I don't think that it was, I think it was far uh, more of a difference than the stuff that I was seeing in the classic, you know, suburban Americana family where the woman uh, was, the wife was staying at home and uh, was effectively doing all the housework um, there, you know, and so I really did grow up differently in the sense that I learned about gender in terms of the prism of gender and culture in, as a sort of faraway nebulous topic. You know, when we did talk about things like gender-based violence in India, when we talked about sexual assault, gang rape, that would happen. When we talked about um, acid attacks and dowry harassment and uh, sati, you know, these concepts were very much not closely, you know, not very close to me, but were just con concepts that were part of the general zeitgeist of you know, of, you know, learning about, you know, the unfortunate aspects of being a woman in South Asia. And that was just very different and just a very removed perspective. You know, I was cherished the fact that, you know, when I went to school, I came from a long line of women before me who were, had been educated, who had held careers, um, even back, you know, before Indian independence. Um, and that, you know, was something that I really did carry with a lot of pride and did allow me to see things differently. What it did happen though, was that when I noticed certain quirks that happened in my day and day life, you know, that may have been related to the prism of gender, um, whether it was, you know, certain things here and there, like there are certain ceremonies as a Hindu that women generally do not really participate in. Or there are certain, um, for example, funeral practices that women are kept removed from. Uh, these quirks really started very productive conversations with me and my parents that allowed me to really go on a journey of women, especially women in the global south and the challenges that they face. And that uh, what I really discovered was that what was that I was really grappling with two notions. Just to conclude this, was that. Indian society 
um, at least until that point, you know, the taunts that we would hear on the playground and at school was that there was a general stereotype that Indian culture treated women very poorly. And I think this is a very gross misrepresentation of classical Indian society. Um, and it's something that I did have to deal with that there was uh, effectively, you know, many of these concepts that we have uh, may or may not have been the result of direct economic uh, disempowerment through British colonization or through concepts that were not part of Indian culture historically, but may have been a very recent perspective or may have been the result of certain economic factors. Um, and so I was grappling with that. And I was also grappling with the fact that there was persistent, there have been trends of vicious gender-based violence in South Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, these are very unfortunate incidents that when I really came to educate women did, you know, did cause me to feel considerably upset that, you know, that this was still happening. And that the more I talked with, uh, you know, even other Indian Americans, and I got to understand that there were households where more traditional gender-based roles were occurring, it did gradually form my opinion um, that, you know, that there can be multiple constants that can be happening and that every perspective really is unique. Mm -hmm. Every perspective is different. And that's what we're trying to say today, too. You know, we all come from different countries that have their own stereotypes, but that doesn't necessarily mean we've experienced those and, you know. Exactly, exactly. And it, it really does affect different life circumstances because I remember I would go to college and people would say, oh, you know, you're an Indian American, so you must have had to either deal with or participate yeah. in, in inherent sexism all your life, which is a very vicious stereotype. And it, it does also play into certain stereotypes now we're seeing in the modern day where Indian men are sort of maybe demonized oh. or maybe have carry stereotypes of being sexist or uh, not caring about women's rights or anything. Just based off of prejudice. You exactly. Know? And that in and of itself reeks of prejudice. Yeah. So, it, you know, I'm very glad that I was able to hear both your guys' perspectives. <laughs> um, and I think that this is really interesting to be able to talk about this and really come to an open ground on if there's different lived experiences yeah i think especially for me it's been like i mean almost two years but i really learned that um within my own community a lot of people weren't aware of things as i've experienced them and people did have different perspectives like you said and the public perspective of that and kind of taking on the role or responsibility of having to destigmatize a lot of these things. And I do think it's unfair as children of diaspora or like people in the diaspora to have to destigmatize everything. But I, I kind of see beauty in that where, you know, you share your experience and someone's shocked. And even if you just change one person's perspective on your country or your home country or whatever the case, it is it's nice to get the ball rolling on these conversations so that we don't keep perpetually feeding into the cycle of what's been wrong for generations. This is true. You know, and I, I've met people who've embodied very, in the sense that it, it's almost self-defeating because, you know, when you meet people who say in India, you know, women are not even treated as worth as, mm -hmm. as cows. They're playing into very vicious 
destigmatizing stereotypes. And at the same time, they're not really acknowledging the issues that happen or that occur in Indian society that maybe lead to that point. It's a very pithy, structured comment that's just made up front that's dismissive. Yeah, and they're not giving credit, you know? And that's one of the things I always say too with at least like Persian women were viewed as these weak creatures that men control and men suppress and all these things. But the reality of it is, like I said, women are so much stronger than that. And through our suppression, we show our strength. And I think that in and of itself is beautiful. And just being able to showcase and destigmatize the fact that like, oh, people of women in the Middle East or men in the, or like in South Asia or whatever the case, like these people are helpless. And I think this conversation was also brought about a lot with Afghanistan too. When, um, you know, when a couple years ago, it was more in the news where you do see like these posters of women and children kind of being like helpless and they are helpless. But at the same time, when you listen to their voices, they're actually showing you how strong they are because they are able to go through this and still wake up each day and try to survive. And I think we don't see that a lot in the media. Exactly. I think these are the conversations, uh, what all brought up. These are the conversations we need to be having, especially when we talk about living in the developing world. Mm -hmm. These are the things that we need to talk about. We cannot play folly into vicious preordained stereotypes that have existed in time immemorial and dismiss entire groups of people, 51% of the population, yeah. majority women are majority of the population in most societies, um, and write them off all of that as weak or helpless creatures or not understand the nuances, you know? Yeah. The situation of a woman in India depends entirely on her circumstances in region, mm-hmm. in uh, class, class than to a woman in Iran or Afghanistan mm-hmm. or Pakistan, you know? Yeah. I think we have to form a new way of communication where we do acknowledge, you know, these power dynamics and the inequalities, but also shine light on how these inequalities don't define people. Mm-hmm. And that there's actually so much more than what you see as the statistics or what, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And I also think that you know, obviously we're still, this is a little unrelated, but I think a little related still, like, as we're still fighting for, like, women to be able to, like, fully, like, pursue their careers and, you know, follow their dreams and things like that, I think sometimes, like, mothers or women that choose to maybe not pursue a career and have, like, a family and maybe still have a those, traditional. yeah, still have those traditional, um, roles are kind of left out of that conversation but like I always kind of have this conversation with my mom like mothers are some of the strongest like women ever Mm -hmm. because it's like you see them really really shine also as they're also advocating for their own children and kind of moving like the ball forward in their own spaces um, for their kids to be able to do even sometimes the things that they didn't get to do. And I think generationally we see a lot of that changing. So, yeah. Interesting conversations. I think this also definitely does go hand in hand with, you know, we talk about culture and gender. We can't dismiss religion and gender. Right. So I think that's a great topic to shift ourselves into. And 
we do have like various religions kind of sitting here. Um, so maybe we can also shift to like what we've experienced with gender within our religions as well. Right. Um, right. So, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, uh, I definitely do think uh, that culture has affected gender more so that as culture evolves, so to have the different views that have used religion mm -hmm. to make judgment. Um, for, for this, I really mean that there are different religious perspectives on certain axioms that comes to gender, you know? Um, the point of this podcast is not to start religious debate. <laughs> yeah. It's not to inflame religious views. Or cultural debate. Or either. cultural debate either. But or really, gender debate. Of course. But to have a discussion on how these sentiments affect us as minority Americans growing up in the West. What I mean by this is that there will be people who say that Islam or Hinduism or Christianity or whatever religion has a certain opinion or view on gender. And there will be all the disagreements under the sun. Um, I know that I can't speak for every Hindu. I know that mm, you guys can't speak for every Muslim or <laughs> that any person can't speak for any other religion. Yeah. But I, I think that there, when we talk about lived experiences, you know, we should talk about uh, how it really affects us and the perspectives that we get with this. I guess that, that's my disclaimer before we begin. That's a perfect disclaimer. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just two girls with a podcast sharing their perspectives with, with the their past. 14 listeners. Exactly. With our friends. So, you know, none of this is to even talk for all women, talk for all men, any of the above. So take whatever you may from this conversation and leave the rest as it is. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess to start things off, I want to ask you guys in terms of culture and your guys' religious views and gender and what, what you guys have to say about that. So my experience with seeing my culture and then also seeing Islam within my culture, I think it's a bit of a unique one because in a lot of ways, Pakistan's still a very new country. And a lot of the reasons why it formed was to sort of be a place where um, mainly Islam, but where like, religious minorities could kind of have a new home and um, a place where they could practice. Um, and so a lot of the cultural norms in um, Pakistan are rooted in Islam, but not in the way that you would think. I do think that um, these sort of gender roles that have come from our culture are like you are spoken and shared under the guise that they're sort of these like religious gender duties that people have um and this is kind of shown like throughout um like Pakistani society um and it kind of does connect to like those oh traditional men being the provider women you know like being more of the nurturers um and people will say they're essentially like fulfilling like their Islamic duties in that way. But I think that has more to do with culture than religion. Um, and that's my perspective on it. And I do think that a lot of 
Islam is misunderstood. To be honest, I don't think I'm the best person to tell you about Islam because I do think that I was taught it in a different way than it's meant to be taught. And I think that's the experience of a lot of Muslims um, in a lot of different countries, not just Pakistan. Um, and I wanted to give a little story because one kind of gendered aspect of um, Islam is that through interpretation, um, it's been found that, you know, when um, parents pass and they're leaving um, inherited property or things to like their children, boys typically get two thirds of that and girls typically get one third of that. And I remember getting into a huge, um, you know, bit of an argument with it with my brother and he's a little more well-versed in Islamic topics than I am. He reads a lot about it and things like that. But he was telling me that even though like women are only getting one third of that, they're not expected to share any of that wealth with their parents or um, like family members that need to be taken care of. Whereas men are expected to take care of um use their two-thirds to take care of people that need to be taken care of. So it's just an interesting perspective. Um, and um, do I think there are roles, gender roles in Islam? Yes, but I don't think that they're always, the gender roles we see in society are always rooted in Islam. I wanted to share a little bit about my perspective because Iman kind of gave you the Islam perspective, but for me, obviously, I being from Iran, I have a Muslim background, but as I stand today, I feel like I don't classify myself as a Muslim, and I don't really classify myself as any specific religion, and that will go, we'll do a whole other topic of conversation on another episode about that, but um, I've kind of liked being in the perspective of just kind of seeing how people treat religion and practice religion not necessarily that i that i deep dive into every religion and what like the religions stand for but i do feel like from an outside perspective i do see the way people take religion and run with it and kind of like iman said you know what's written isn't really necessarily practice nowadays and you can say that with every religion under the sun not just islam and i think you know in media Islam's the one that's been <laughs> drastically talked about in every conversation about how radical of a religion it has become, all these things. But, you know, that's not what it is at its core. And you can say that about every religion. And I do think a lot of what shapes gender norms and gender views, as well as cultural views, whatever the case may be, does have a lot of religious views as well tied to it. I mean, we're talking about Pakistan here, but let's not forget, I mean, in America, a lot of Christianity views shape the laws and legislation that's led in America. I mean, with Roe versus Wade and um, abortion rights, that's all of that is rooted in views of religion, not necessarily based on scientific fact or, you know, actually <laughs> the sanity of these things or whatever it may be. Um, so, I did want to share that too, where we kind of take little snippets of written scripture and kind of run with it and yeah. turn it into something it necessarily isn't. Something I wanted to mention too, as well about Islam, is that I do feel it's 
like I said, deeply misunderstood religion. And I feel like it's important to note that like literally one of, I think the earliest university in the world was like in built in Islam. <laughs> yeah, but um, was built in a under at that time what was an Islamic um, community, and I think people sometimes think like because Muslims are religious that that means they can't like question things or be curious. And I think when religion is practiced wrong is when I think it doesn't leave um, it doesn't invite questions, right? And I think that's where. Um, it can get radical or it can get um, a little bit misunderstood and when people are expected to follow it to the T, but it's like, wait, what are we following? Mm -hmm. What we're following to a T, is that really how it's supposed to be? And I think having those questions in mind, always being curious about, you know, like what something is really teaching is really important. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, you know, in, in, at least in my personal circumstance, I, I can't speak to um, your all lived experiences. But as a Hindu, one of the first things that I noted growing up was that this was a religion, one of the major world religions that had a devotion towards femininity, um, that had a devotion towards um, a concept of either a mother goddess or um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the supreme feminine Shakti, um, or uh, things of that nature. And, uh, you know, uh, and uh, I also completely agree that Hinduism, at least, you know, when it maybe has come to the academia or to people on the outside, has taken the culture of South Asia, the culture of India, um, and has extrapolated it to how Hinduism had set up its precepts on gender. Mm -hmm. um, Hinduism as a society... Uh, Hinduism or Hindu concepts have evoked everything from the mention of a third gender mm -hmm. to in Hindu mythology, women of very important, um, women holding very high uh, political power, important positions, much like um, the precepts and mythology you're talking about mm -hmm. in, in ancient Persia. And I think that, um, you know, going forward, you know, that there are different also doctrines in, in, in Hinduism, the different types of text material um, that, you know, you're, you're dealing with a very old religion that has, um, you know, stuff, concepts ranging from Shruti, which was the written word, to Smriti, which is the spoken mm -hmm. word, to the Puranas, which is another type of uh, text, to the Gita, which is the main text that Hindus use. And these, you know, concepts, while you know, you know, if we take, for example, sexist remarks in some of these comments or some of these, in some of these texts, is not representative of um, uh, what I feel to be the core religion um, uh, in Hinduism and the honoring of women in Hinduism. And I think the, you know, the the, the big takeaway is that um, in all of our cases, we really interpret religion through the prison that we were in, you mm -hmm. know? Um, I can't say that if I had a different life circumstance, I maybe would not have, or have maybe drawn and taken religion from a different sense. But I do know that 
what our religion or what faith can do for us is that it can provide with us a testimony um, that can serve to understand universal concepts of justice. Part of those concepts may in fact include the empowerment of women in yeah. gender. And that whether it is Islam, Hinduism, or Christianity, or whatever, that there we can say um, that uh, we can choose to um, understand at a high enlightened level and take comprehensive analysis and really dive deep in what it means. And that once you get to the core of the truth, that at least for me personally as a Hindu, that, you know, therein is, you know, uh, at the same time, a huge misrepresentation of what, what people say when they say that potentially if they, they make the argument that Hinduism is a sexist religion um, and completely turn that notion over to the head and completely discredit it. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a perfect transition because I loved what you kind of were saying about, well, if you were kind of handed a different set of identities, what would you feel right now, right? And I do have this belief that we can be secure in our identities and with our stories, but as well, going forward, learn to be critical of certain things, you know, being Muslim and being critical of what Islam stands for today or being woman and being critical of how we've led possibly to the ways in which we've silenced men in their emotions or whatever the case may be. I, I do think gender going forward and in the next generations does need to adopt this open communication because a lot of what we face today with a lot of these arguments, especially of the feminist movement argument and what it means to be a feminist comes from a place where we just didn't sit and communicate and a lot of perceived notions were placed on these things rather than learning to be critical of our own identities, but also communicating what we truly mean. And I, the stigma of you know, this word of what does the feminist word mean or what does it mean to be um, a feminist has gone through this fourth wave, which. Yeah, so, you know, there's been a lot of different waves of feminism in throughout the years. And this kind of fourth wave of feminism is bringing up um, this invitation um to men from women to have conversations um, revolving around what feminism really means and using that word. And yet with so many men not self-identifying as feminists, even and even some women shying away from using the term as to not and appear a feminist. Term, yeah. um, but I think as to not appear a feminist because there's a negative connotation to it, it begs the question do we need a new way of describing feminism in a way that will benefit both genders? Um, a new term or a new way of um, bringing it up in conversations so that people don't um, shy away Feel from it. Feel offended. I actually have to add in that, you know, this is something that I, uh, you know, wrestled with, with my peers in that mm -hmm. many men who believe in the equality of men and women, who believe in the equality of sexes, will not identify as a feminist simply because of the name 
effect. Not even the value. Not even the value. Yeah. It's the name. It's the stigma. It's the history and culture behind first, second, and third wave uh, feminism and the upcoming and the current fourth wave that we live in. And that it's, we have to, and I actually do agree with the point that, you know, maybe we we do need to maybe even consider uh, a possible term or term change. Uh, I wouldn't go, go so far as to say, is this something that I decided on resolutely? Um, <laughs> we invent a word yeah, together. No, we're not going to invent a word today in this podcast, but it, it's worth the conversation having and really yeah. see what other men may think about it. Maybe mm-hmm. if we call it egalitarianism, maybe men might be more interested in if political equality. Um, I can't wait to see how that one unravels. Uh, you know, we was talking about men and political equality. I think there's, we love men. There is the common adage in the feminist movement that the patriarchy hurts men. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you, we we can't go into the laurels of debating this and and whatnot. But what we do have is a society where young disaffected men have withdrawn. Uh, that have inevitably led for them to look at other podcasts, maybe run by Andrew Tate, <laughs> oh, uh, no. who have talked about things, you know, in the manosphere, you know, this concept of the internet of uh, the red pill or of anti-feminism, um, a return to traditional gender roles. I do not feel that this is productive for the way of society forward. I do think that this leads to radicalization. Mm-hmm. It leads to civil strife. It can even lead to things like terrorism. Just more hatred. It does lead to more hatred. I think that we need to have... A bridge. A bridge. I need to think we need to have empathy and an open communication. For sure. But more than that, we need to have honest communications with ourselves. That's the biggest part I feel like we were all getting at at multiple times within this podcast is, you know, how can we go forward and recognize, yes, there is this divide between femininity and masculinity and how do we try with each step to bridge this gap together and I do believe that at the core of it it all stems with like Monet said communication education and representation you know the media represents these dual forms of masculinity and femininity and if we present more sources to the media like we are with this podcast and you know with various other forms if we do get accurate representations of you know what gender means in our cultures and our religions and every path we stand on I do think that leads to empathy where we can try to understand each other because I do believe that where we stand today it is too difficult for a man and a woman to sit together and even try to understand the other person because there's no effective way of communication there. And through every word, it feels like both people need to be attacking each other in order to even just defend themselves. And I, none of that is productive. Yeah, I think even when in right now in society, I do think I've had some conversations with some men that it feels like they're openly communicating about like their perspective and their lived experience. But I still think that especially with men, there's still this stigma around fully opening up about their experience in the way that I feel like I think a lot of women have been speaking about for a long time. So, yeah. yeah. And I I have to completely agree. I think having conversations like this one is part of the essence of, 
what might be very hard work, but very necessary work for the genders in America and the West in, on earth to re reconcile and understand each other. I wanna close out with a quote by Wangari Mathai. We can work together for a better world with men and women of goodwill, those who radiate the intrinsic goodness of humankind. I think this is a sentiment that we should carry in our everyday lives. I love that, Monet. And I do want to reiterate again, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Thank you. For I know it me. wasn't super easy, but thank you for sitting here and communicating with two old gals. <laughs> you know, so thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. And thank you all for listening. Bye-bye.